I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, this is Dr. Christopher Perrin, and you're listening to Café Scolé. Welcome to another podcast episode in which we seek to bring restful, contemplative learning back to our schools, homeschools, and lives. That is to say, to bring Scolé back to school. This is the fourth podcast of Café Scolé, dedicated to Scolé in the scriptural tradition. We're going to look at some passages in the Old and New Testament to see if we don't find the concept of Scolé in scripture in various forms. But before we do that, I want to remind you of why we are doing such a deep dive and, and study of Scolé. It's because I think, and I believe you will think, if you don't already, that our culture very much needs to recover the contemplative life. And we need to recover it personally, and of course we need to recover it for the purposes of raising and educating our children. If scole is the root word for school, we might ask, should we incorporate scole into our school and homeschool? Well, let me read to you from the foreword of a book called The Age of Martha, A Call to Contemplative Learning in a Frenzied Culture by Devin O'Donnell. This is another really good book to familiarize you with the importance of scole or leisurely restful learning. Here's the foreword I wrote for the book, having been very impressed with what Devin O'Donnell has written. Most modern education is frenetic. Our word frenetic is derived from the Greek frenetikos and frenitis, which means an inflammation of the brain. The Greek word can even mean insanity. Given what education should be, most education, most modern education, is neither sane nor healthy. Modern educators are runners. In fact, we are often sprinters. We dash about. With inflamed brains, we run here and there, even as we prod our students to do the same. We are very much in touch with our curricula and the root idea of curriculum, for curriculum means a race course, the path set before us on which we run. Now, I'm playing here with the idea of curriculum. The word in Latin, curriculum, literally did mean a course on which, on which one would run. And there's nothing wrong with using the word curriculum to refer to a course of studies. The trouble is, we do run too much along this course of studies and make our children run, run, run. Academic running need not be a problem. Students should acquire strength to travel through a good classical curriculum of study. It becomes problematic when we only run and thus many students are anxious throughout much of their curriculum. Any good runner does run a lot, but any good runner 
rests as much as he runs. The important harmony of running and resting is a chief aim of O'Donnell's book, The Age of Martha. He knows that contemporary education is discordant, full of anxious activity, but nearly devoid of rest. He reminds us that this was the era that Martha made when Christ visited her and her sister Mary at home in Luke 10. Martha was running about, troubled about many things, presumably in the kitchen, when she should have been sitting, resting, and enjoying conversation with Jesus along with her sister Mary. Martha erred not because she was busy, but because she was busy at a time when she should have rested. We learn from Martha and Mary that there is a proper time for running, but also for resting. Our current age resembles Martha. We have forgotten how to be like Mary. O'Donnell pairs the restful disposition of Mary with the traditional concept of contemplation and leisure best captured by the Greek word skole. The Greek word means something akin to undistracted time, to study the things that are most worthwhile. Now, I've repeated that over and over again. It's a great irony that skole is the root for our word school. As we've said several times, there's little skole in our schools. If our students are to find harmony, a harmony of active and restful learning, then teachers, administrators, and parents must find it first and then model it. O'Donnell exhorts us to learn how to be before we do and to gaze with a single eye without distraction that we might become what we behold. Citing a rich list of models from Augustine to Joseph Pieper, he shows how we might recover a kind of rooted tree stability and weight that only comes from leisurely learning and reflection. By leisurely reading this book, any educator will be helped and inspired to put the scole back into school. Now, I'm impressed with the distinction between being and doing. Being akin to the contemplative life, doing akin to the active life. Both are important. There are times when we need to be or rest or contemplate. And there are times when we need to do, to serve, to love, to be actively engaged. Hear what O'Donnell says to create this contrast and harmony. He writes, The renewal of classical learning is alive and well, but most educators laboring in the renewal would likely agree that we still have much to do. How can we teach logic successfully and not just say that we did? How can we help parents who don't know a lick of Latin? Is there such a thing as a standard rhetoric text? That's just the beginning. How can we teach our children if there's so much to learn ourselves? Then there is the SAT preparation to consider, the college board standards, and the remaining challenges for homeschools and day schools to fit all the academic rigor of antique study into the complicated bureaucracy of what defines a complete education today. And for some, this still does not begin to account for the task of situating classical learning into the larger mission of Christian discipleship. How are we to fulfill St. Paul's command to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? It is indeed overwhelming. It seems that there's no end to the work that lies before us. Although the renewal of classical learning is flourishing, we still have much to do.
However, all this talk of doing has possibly had unintended consequences. We know all about doing in our modern age. We live in a busying time where doing is not just the norm, it's the boast of modern life. We can perform several functions on our smartphones while listening to someone talk to us, while enjoying our famous song in the background, while studying for history, while driving to multiple appointments in the same day. We want our students to be involved in plays, music recitals, and sports games. We want to believe it's possible to have it all, because we think that's what is meant by living a full life. The funny thing is that in all our doing, we have not considered well enough how this affects our education. The incessant activity of daily life, Stratford Caldecott suggests, is one of the main hindrances to a healthy and flourishing life. In his book on the classical trivium, Caldecott notes, we have been educating ourselves for doing rather than for being. The effects of this on family life are such that the home has become more like a gas station or an airline terminal, a place we are simply passing through rather than a destination in itself and a space where we find consolation and rest. Similarly, our schools have become places of information rather than formation, where academic culture has turned into frenetic management of getting through curricula rather than a sustained commitment to the mastery of disciplines and ideals. That's Devin O'Donnell in his introduction to the Age of Martha, a call to contemplative learning in a frenzied culture. So we, we keep looking at this concept of scole, a restful learning, and asking ourselves, what is it and how can we have it? And where did it come from? What are its origins? Why did we lose it? And how do we recover or renew it again today? In this podcast, we want to look at scole in the scriptural tradition as one way of engaging in the renewal or recovery of scole. So let's do that. As we segue into what the scriptures say about scole, let's remind ourselves what Aristotle said. And what Aristotle said can be a kind of background for us as we consider Scholae in Scripture. He writes in Book 7 of the Politics, he writes this, We fulfill our nature not only when we work well, but when we use Scholae well. For I must repeat what I've said before, that Scholae is the initiating principle of all achievements. Granted that work and scholae are both necessary, yet scholae is the desired end for which work is done. And this raises the question of how we ought to employ our scholae, not by merely amusing ourselves, obviously, for that would be to set up amusement as the chief end of life. So, we see here that Aristotle thinks that the chief end of life ought not to be amusement, but ought to be scholae, or leisurely learning, or restful learning and discussion and conversation, or contemplation. Well, do we find scholae in the Old Testament? Well, maybe not in using the word scholae, but we see the idea very much in the Old Testament. We can go back to Genesis to see that we were meant for rest. 
in the Genesis narrative, God rests on the seventh day. And as it were, man and woman are created and find their existence. They find themselves waking up into this day of rest. We enter into divine rest by virtue of creation. And of course, when God rests on the seventh day, he's not resting because he is weary. It's not that kind of rest. It's not a physical rest to recharge. It's a kind of enjoyment and contented satisfaction and engagement with his creation. So rest is that too. It's not just not just sleep and recharging. It is a kind of joyful engagement. So we see it even in the Genesis narrative. And of course, we'll see later that Christ says he is the Sabbath rest. Uh, Hebrews talks about this. Hebrews 4, that to enter into God's rest is something that happens through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, now the insight of Scolé was picked up by the church and identified with contemplation. It's not surprising, therefore, that the Old Testament also suggests a life of restful learning and contemplation that is the heart of a full human life. Think about this passage from Psalm 27. This is a Psalm of David. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. And later on in that psalm, he says, Your face, O Lord, will I seek. This is a powerful passage. David, a busy executive, a king, he does not have time. His, His active life calls him away a lot calls him away from the temple, calls him away from contemplating the Lord and his beauty. But in David's heart, this is what he would, this is what he wants. If he, if he could, if circumstances would allow it, if God's providence and calling would allow it, he would prefer to dwell in the house of the Lord every day of his life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Now, temple, the word temple itself is already calling us to this ideal of scole in contemplation. Templum in Latin meant temple, and we pick it up in English. And a temple is a sacred place where in the Roman cultus, the priest would go to seek to discern the omen and will of the gods. It's a set-apart place. And this, of course, is true of the Christian religion and faith. The temple is the place, the church is a place, a set-aside place, where we leave our earthly cares to contemplate the truth of God and the Trinity and his way with us. It's a sacred space in which we can contemplate. We see this in Psalm 27. How about this passage from Isaiah 30, verse 15? This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. 
How about this passage from Job 3? I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. These passages and many others indicate to us that one of the great ideals of a human life before God is the life of quietness and peace and rest, such that in repentance and rest is salvation, in quietness and trust is strength. The Hebrew concept of shalom, which is often translated peace, also includes a connotation that's similar to skole. In addition to the idea of safety and soundness, shalom also frequently means quiet, tranquility, and friendship. Shalom is not just the absence of war. It's not peace in that sense. It means tranquility, friendship. And these are all components of skole. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, Skole only appears twice in Genesis 33:14 and in Proverbs 28:19 and in those cases it means leisure in the primary sense of going slowly and even of wasting time. In the apocryphal book The Wisdom of Sirach, however, we find this really interesting passage. Now, some of you would not go to um a book like The Wisdom of Sirach as an authoritative book because it's an apocryphal book. However, the Apocrypha still had great influence in the church. And these books, even for Protestants, are books worth reading and consulting and have had influence on church thinking. They're just not considered to be canonical by Protestants. Here's what we read in The Wisdom of Sirach, chapter 3, verse 24 and 25. The wisdom of a learned man comes by opportunity of leisure. And in this case, it's the word skole. So let's use that word. The wisdom of a learned man comes by opportunity of skole. And he that has little business shall become wise. How can he get wisdom? He that holds the plow and glories in the goad that drives oxen and is occupied in their labors, and whose talk is of bullocks. So again, the wisdom of the learned man, the learned man comes from the opportunity of skole. And the one that has little business is the one who's going to become wise. In other words, if we have too much business, too much activity, too much concern with our farms, with our, with our cows and our oxen and our goats, uh, always putting our hand to the plow, how will such a person become wise? Here the word skole is used very much as Aristotle uses it. And the context makes it clear that wisdom comes from the man who takes the opportunity of skole and does not overindulge in wage-earning labors. Note how the passage not only addresses too much business or labor, but also addresses the mental preoccupation of the man who only talks about his work. If his only talk is of his cows, we must surmise that his only thought is about them as well. What about Skole in the New Testament? In the New Testament, written in Greek, 
Skole, which is a Greek word, only occurs a few times. Skole can refer to a lecture hall, where skole, or learned discussions, would occur. And this is what we find in Acts 19.9, where we read that Paul took his disciples daily for discussions at the lecture hall, the skolein, of a man named Tyrannus. In 1 Corinthians 7.5, Paul writes that married couples should devote themselves to prayer. And the Greek word for devote is skolasete. Hear the skole in there? Skolasete. They should skolasete themselves to prayer. Prayer should be a kind of skole. And we know that Basil said that. St. Basil. Paul here uses the verbal form of skole that means to have rest or leisure or to be dedicated or devoted, in this case, to prayer. Beyond the actual use of the word skole, we do find the New Testament addressing the concept or idea of skole, however, in several places. First, the example of Christ. The first indication that we get that Jesus condones restful learning is that time that we find him at age 12, away from his parents, for at least three days. And where was he? He was in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. That's Luke 2:46. Leaving aside the fact that everyone who hears him was amazed at his understanding and his answers, that's 2:47. we should note that Jesus spends three days engaged in conversation with the best teachers in Israel. Three days. Was he sleeping at the temple too? And he did this at the age of a sixth grader. He tells his parents, quote, that he had to be in his father's house, close quote. But we note that what he was doing in his father's house resembles skole, or restful learning, engaging in conversation with the best pastors around, the pastors and scholars of the Bible. This is an example of skole. We find as well, Christ frequently going off by himself to pray, even for 40 days at a time. Christ never seemed to be in a hurry, but was relaxed and peaceful. Even when others around him are frenetic, he is tranquil. We've seen this in a previous podcast when we looked at Luke 10. In Luke 10, Martha implores Jesus to tell her sister Mary to help her with dinner preparations for Martha was busy working while Mary was sitting and talking with Jesus. And Jesus responds to Martha by saying, Martha, Martha, you are anxious or busy and troubled about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. It's hard to imagine a better illustration from the Gospels about what skole means than this event recorded in Luke 10. We all have to prepare meals, do dishes, work for wages, and these things, of course, are good things. The better thing, however, the better thing, however, when we are free to choose is to talk with the Master. And Mary was talking with the Master, and she certainly chose wisely. Well, we certainly should not pass over the Gospels without mentioning Matthew 11. Matthew 11, say 27 through 30. 
This is the famous passage in which Jesus says that he is the one who gives rest. Um, we read this. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Father chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, this is a remarkable passage. It doesn't feature the word skole. It features the word pasis, which uh, in Greek uh, is related to the word pause, to to kind of stop activity. And in the case of the uh, laying aside of activity, there is a kind of freedom, a kind of rest that comes. But But note the context. It's how can there be this kind of rest when Jesus is saying, take upon you my yoke? And you know, this is an agricultural metaphor. You know, two oxen would, be work, would work together side by side with a big wooden yoke over their necks, over both of their necks. Jesus is saying, I am already in a yoke and I'm going somewhere. I'm doing some work. Why don't you become yoked next to me? Why don't you pull side by side with me? Because my yoke is easy. My burden is light. So this is a kind of paradox. There's a, there's a sense in which Christ is so strong. He's such a strong ox that if you are next to him, he has done and will do, as it were, all the work for you. And so to be yoked to him is quite a gig. He's the partner you want. He says, of course, some other lovely things. He says, you're heavy laden, you're laboring, but I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. There's a kind of learning that's going to occur and now here we're talking about education in some fashion, are we not? This is the way to be taught. This is the way to learn. It's to be in union with Jesus Christ, the second of the Trinity. He embodies rest and has overcome all and done all work and will enable you to work in such a way that it doesn't feel like work. It will feel easy because you're yoked to Jesus. And he's gentle and lowly. In him you will find rest for your soul. So whatever this word this Greek word for rest means it's for your soul. It's a soulish rest. So not just the cessation of physical activity. To be yoked to Jesus means to find a soul, a soulish rest. His burden is light. This passage is just, it defies complete explanation and, and searching out, does it not? It's a beautiful passage worth memorizing, worth knowing, and working into all you do as an educator and parent, and worth every student knowing as well.
So here we see the concept of skole, or restful learning, being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's something that transcends what we find in Plato and Aristotle. Well, what about examples from Paul's writings? How about this passage, this rich passage from 2 Corinthians 3? Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, or from glory to glory, as some passages render it, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 2 Corinthians three seventeen and 18. Paul notes that the faithful, in the context of the freedom given by the Holy Spirit, contemplate or gaze upon the glory of God and are then transformed to resemble that very glory. This reminds us of Christ's teaching that a student, when he's been fully trained, will be like his master. Luke six thirty six. Paul also hints that this transformation is a process and that it takes time. We gaze and we study the glory and slowly with ever increasing glory from glory to glory, we grow to resemble this glory. Paul has in mind the experience of Moses coming down from Mount Sinai after meeting with God there, having received the two tablets containing the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from that mountain, his face was glowing brightly enough that he spooked the Israelites and he had to put a veil over his face. Here's what we read from Exodus 34, verses 29, 30, and 35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. Apparently to Paul, the life of the Christian is to be one of contemplation and gazing, looking, looking on the same one that set Moses' face to glowing. This implies undistracted gazing, focus, and set-apart time. Looking, gazing, contemplation thus become a metaphor for learning, conversation, and transformation. After all, Moses was not upon the mountain in a kind of dream sleep. He was rather talking and listening to God, having a remarkable conversation with the Master. Paul suggests now that we do the same. It seems that even when not using the word skole, that the Old and New Testaments nonetheless describe a growing and learning process that is very much in keeping with Aristotle's use of that word. Slow, restful conversation and learning is set before us as an example to follow with Christ himself as the master of skole. If the entire Christian life can be summarized as a kind of slow and sanctified conversation with the master, could it be that all of our learning should take a cue from the same kind of restful learning 
and resemble a refreshing and ongoing conversation? If Christ says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And if he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Then should not the way we educate our sons and daughters be gentle and restful? How many of us have been busy about many things, thinking that we were not free to choose anything else? Well, thank you for joining me this week for this podcast on Skolé in the scriptural tradition. In our next podcast, I'll introduce you to a guest and we'll begin some conversation on the practical applications of Skolé in our schools and homeschools. I look forward to being with you then. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.